You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 48, the First Continental Congress. During the fall of 1774, at the same time the colonists in Massachusetts were taking military and political control of the colony, colonial leaders headed to Philadelphia to see if they could coordinate a peaceful yet effective response to the coercive acts. Back in episode 45, I discussed how in June 1774, Samuel Adams had gotten the Massachusetts Assembly to call for the Congress. After Gage closed Boston Harbor and moved the legislature to Salem, Adams locked the assembly doors, passed a resolution calling for a Continental Congress in September. The legislature appointed himself, his cousin John Adams, the Speaker Thomas Cushing, Robert Treat Payne, and James Bowden to the delegation that would attend. He did this all while the governor's representative was screaming outside the locked doors that the assembly was dissolved and that all of this was illegal. Even so, the invitation went out to the other colonies. Most of them had also called for some similar sort of meeting, if only to avoid any immediate and devastating economic boycott of Britain. I'm not going to go through the list of all the 55 delegates you can find them on a link that is listed on my blog. And by the way, I want to mention that I have a new domain for my blog. It is blog.amrevpodcast.com. So anyway, back to the First Continental Congress. The men represented 12 of the colonies. Only Georgia failed to send a delegation. Many of the men were already well-known patriots. George Washington and Patrick Henry came with the Virginia delegation. John Dickinson attended the Pennsylvania delegation. Many others, however, attended not to create a united opposition, but to prevent the radicals from committing their colonies to some crazy scheme. Many of these delegates ended up on the Loyalist side once the war actually began. Quite a few of the delegates arrived early, allowing them to chat with other colonial delegations and get to know each other in an informal setting such as dinner or a night of drinking at a tavern. On September 5, 1774, Congress convened and got down to action. Before getting to the debate, they settled a few preliminary matters. First, they had to settle on exactly where they would meet. The 44 delegates present on the first day met at City Tavern. That was great for informal meetings, but not to host the Congress. They considered using the State House, the same building we today call Independence Hall, but they decided against it. Using the colony's legislative building might imply that they were taking government power without the consent of the Crown. In the end, they decided on a smaller hall a few blocks away. Carpenter's Hall 
was a relatively newly built structure for local artisans to use. The delegates decided that it would meet their needs. Delegates took their seats and got down to business. They elected Peyton Randolph of Virginia to serve as the President of Congress. They decided each colony would get one vote regardless of size. A majority of each delegation would determine how that colony would vote. Finally, on September 7th, they prepared to turn to the issue which had brought them together, how to respond to the coercive acts. Just as the delegates were getting down to business, a messenger brought news from Boston that the British Army had fired artillery on Boston, killing six. This news was not true, of course. It was only a rumor based on the British Powder House raid that I discussed two weeks ago in episode 46. But it took a few days for the true story to arrive, and delegates lived under the assumption that the news they had received was true. Just after receiving the news, Congress opened its session with a prayer from local Anglican minister Reverend Jacob Duchesne of Christ Church. Even the selection of the Reverend was a political test of sorts. Samuel Adams and the Massachusetts delegation, as well as most New Englanders, were Congregationalists and not part of the Church of England. By selecting an Anglican minister, they showed that they were willing to maintain some ties with the old country and with some of their more conservative colonists in the central and southern colonies. After the opening prayers, still thinking the regulars had just killed colonists in Massachusetts, the delegates began to debate as if open war had already begun. A few days later, on September 16th, Paul Revere arrived with more details about the crisis in Massachusetts. Delegates learned that the people had essentially shut down all government operations in Massachusetts outside of military-occupied Boston. They did learn that blood had not been spilled, but a military standoff made clear that it would if neither side backed down. Revere also brought with him the Suffolk Resolves that I discussed last week. The Congress published and unanimously approved the Resolves. I find it amazing that the Congress would approve such a radical document given some of the moderate and downright Loyalist members sitting in the Congress. Part of this may have been that Congress had thought for over a week that the British had fired on Boston and killed civilians. Even after they discovered that was not true, the news of the powder alarm left an impression with many that a shooting war could break out at any time. The other colonists felt that Massachusetts was getting a raw deal. Even if they were not ready to sacrifice all in a fight with Britain, the Congress did seem to admire the courage of Massachusetts to stand up against their oppressor in such a bold and open way. Part of the effectiveness at the Congress for the Radicals was in their strategy. Many moderates and conservatives from places like New York and Pennsylvania prepared to take on the New Englanders directly, assuming they would call for radical action. The moderates planned to counter this argument by saying that the New Englanders had gotten themselves into this mess through their own actions and that moderation and compromise would lead to a better solution. The New Englanders, however, remained relatively silent in the debate. They left the radical argument to Southerners, men like Richard Henry Lee and Patrick Henry of Virginia, as well as Christopher Gadsden of South Carolina. These Southerners did not call on Congress to help their own colonies, 
they were acting out of principle to help their fellow New England comrades. This was designed to guilt the middle colonies into expressing support as well. Several Southern delegates proposed sending soldiers to Massachusetts and calling on the citizens of Boston to abandon the city so that a colonial force could assault the military garrison occupying the town. The delegates defeated this proposal, but after doing so, supporting the Suffolk resolves seemed like a more moderate approach. As a result, moderate and conservative leaders felt compelled to go along. Some moderates, however, did try to introduce a better long-term solution to the ongoing fights between Britain and her colonies. Joseph Galloway, from Pennsylvania, had long been an advocate for having Parliament grant the colonies some representation in Parliament. Doing so, he argued, would end the fight over taxation without representation. Years ago, some members of Parliament seemed amenable to this idea. The Radicals, however, had long rejected such a plan. A small minority in Parliament would do nothing to prevent Parliament from taxing the colonies with impunity and against their interests. And as an example, one would have to look no further than Scotland, where delegates from that country made up less than 10% of the English Parliament, and Britain routinely passed laws that disadvantaged the Scottish people. At Congress, Galloway did not even try to make an argument for colonial representation in Parliament. He knew that was a losing battle. Instead, Galloway proposed the creation of a Grand Council of Colonies. This council will be made up of representatives from all the colonies, much like the current Congress, and would have authority to veto any parliamentary laws affecting the colonies. The Radicals saw the Galloway Plan as a danger to their agenda of getting unified colonial support to boycott Britain and force Parliament to back down fully. They wanted Parliament to recognize the sovereignty of colonial legislatures, not create another layer of bureaucracy to control those legislatures. In the end, the delegates tabled Galloway's plan and even expunged all references to its debate in the Congressional Journal. They simply did not want such a plan to become a distraction. Despite the shift toward more radical ideas, it does not seem that anyone in Congress was considering independence. At least no one was saying it out loud. Virginia delegate George Washington heard rumors that the Massachusetts delegation was seeking independence, and he spoke directly to the members. John Adams told him there was some talk of independence among some of the country radicals, probably the source of the rumors Washington had heard. The leadership, though, had absolutely no wish to move in that direction. Washington later reported his conversation in a letter to a friend. He noted that no one was considering independence and that, quote, no such thing is desired by any thinking man in all North America, end quote. But if the moderates hoped to use the Congress to slow down radical opposition to Parliament, they were sorely disappointed. Events in Massachusetts allowed the radical position to control the agenda in Congress. Over the next few weeks, Congress integrated many of the proposals set forth in the Suffolk Resolves into a new document spelling out a consensus view of the Congress. They also drew heavily from a document entitled A Summary View of the Rights of British America, submitted by a Virginian named Thomas Jefferson. Now, Jefferson was not a delegate, 
but he had been a member of the Virginia legislature. His work seemed to resonate with many members of Congress. On October 17th, Congress issued and approved its Declaration of Rights and Grievances. The summary view and the Declaration are both worth reading in full. Both are only about three or four pages long, but rather than subject you to me reading them to you in full here, I'll note that I have included a link to the document on my blog, blog blog.amrevpodcast.com. The Declaration first challenged the Parliament's authority in the Declaratory Act to pass any laws for the colonies in all cases whatsoever. It challenged Parliament's authority to impose duties for the purpose of raising revenue, objected to the American Board of Customs Commissioners, and the use of admiralty courts. It also objected to making colonial officers dependent on the crown for their salaries, for keeping standing armies in the colonies in times of peace, and for threatening to transport colonists accused of treason to England for trial. Next, the Declaration turned to the Coercive Acts, calling the Port Act, the Government Act, the Justice Act, and the Quebec Act, quote, impolitic, unjust, and cruel, as well as unconstitutional, and most dangerous and destructive of American rights, end quote. It also objected to the colonial governors regularly dissolving elected assemblies which were attempting to discuss their grievances or draft petitions to resolve disputes peacefully and according to the law. Because of these actions, the Congress held it appropriate to declare the following. First, like all men, they had a right to life, liberty, and property an expression of fundamental rights coined by John Locke a century earlier. Second, that as their ancestors had immigrated from England, they have the same rights and liberties as the subjects still living in England. Third, that immigrating from England or being a descendant of an immigrant did not forfeit or lose such rights. Fourth, a fundamental English liberty is a right to representation in the legislature. English colonists could not properly be represented in Parliament and therefore had authority to maintain their own colonial legislatures. These local legislatures had full authority over taxes and local laws, with only the king having authority to veto legislation, just as the king could veto acts of Parliament. Not mentioned was the fact that the king had not vetoed a bill in almost 70 years. In other words, colonial laws would in almost all cases be final for the colonies, just as Parliament's laws were in England. The Congress did recognize Parliament's right to regulate external trade and to control foreign policy for the empire. Fifth, the Congress demanded recognition of the common law right to trial by jury in the locality where the crime was committed. Also, sixth, the right to benefit from the laws of England as they existed when their colonies were first established. Seventh, they further held the rights established in their colonial charters or in laws passed by their colonial legislatures. Eighth, they held the right to assemble, consider grievances, and petition the king. Ninth, keeping standing armies in a colony in time of peace without the consent of the colonial legislature is illegal. Tenth, legislative power by an appointed council was unconstitutional. Not only had Parliament just made this change in Massachusetts, but several other colonies had long lived under appointed council. 
Therefore, they backed off a bit and said they were only concerned about changes made since the end of the French and Indian War. Then they listed the specific acts of Parliament they found objectionable. In light of these wrongs, the Declaration agreed to a non-importation, non-consumption, and non-exportation agreement with an association to enforce such rules. The Congress also agreed to prepare a public address for the people of Great Britain and America, as well as a petition to the King consistent with the Declaration. The most controversial proposal to come out of the Congress was the creation of the Continental Association. Effective December 1st, the Congress agreed that the colonies would stop all imports from and exports to Britain, Ireland, and the West Indies. They also included a non-consumption clause agreeing not to consume any such products. This meant that smugglers who had violated the import agreement would have no market to sell their goods anywhere in the colonies. The Articles also completely banned any participation in the international slave trade, though it did nothing to prevent internal sale and purchase of slaves in and among the colonies. No one was really thinking about this being a first step toward emancipation. Rather, there were too many slaves in the colonies, and this was reducing the price of slaves by more than the slave owners liked. The ban was also part of a larger effort to shut down transatlantic trade on anything. The delegates also pledged to use, quote, frugality, economy, and industry, end quote, to limit extravagances that had led them to be indebted to Britain. It discouraged any horse racing, cockfights, plays, etc. It even asked mourners at funerals to cut back on traditions that required the purchase of goods from Britain. The southern colonies balked at some of this, and it had nothing to do with the slave trade ban. Virginia and South Carolina were particularly concerned about the ban on all exports. Both colonial economies were completely dependent on exports of cash crops, tobacco for Virginia, and indigo and rice for South Carolina. Even a cutback on imports and extravagances would not save many rich planters from bankruptcy if they could not service their debts by selling their cash crops. In the end, Congress compromised, calling for a ban on exports to begin a year later, in September 1775, if Britain had not yet repealed the Coercive Acts by then. Even with that, the delegates could only convince South Carolina to go along by allowing a continued export of rice permanently. Unlike earlier merchants' agreements, the Congress created an ongoing association to observe trade throughout the colonies and report anyone violating the terms of the association. Many conservatives, both in Congress and in the population generally, objected to the terms. They noted that if the colonial legislatures objected to Parliament legislating on their behalf, why then, they asked, was it okay for this quasi-legal Continental Congress to legislate on behalf of the colonial legislatures? Many, though, supported the action. If the British closed the port of Boston to all trade, the other colonies had to stand in solidarity with the people of Boston. Surely London could not handle a complete cessation of trade with her colonies for long. She would have to back down and respect colonial rights. Congress's final product for the session was the petition. A committee headed by Richard Henry Lee 
and thought to be drafted primarily by John Dickinson, modeled the petition on the Declaration of Rights and Grievances that had been approved a week earlier. It largely spelled out the same sentiments, primarily requesting that the coercive acts be repealed, but it began and ended with praise for the king and humble language and an expression of loyalty. Basically, it was a request to undo all the laws and rules relating to colonial trade and taxes since the end of the Seven Years' War, which coincidentally was about the same time George III became king. Congress received the petition on October 25th, made a few changes, and gave final approval the following day. It ordered the final document shipped off to King George. Lord North received the petition in December on behalf of the king. Parliament had refused even to receive earlier petitions that had questioned Parliament's authority to pass laws for the colonies. Despite that this petition similarly denied that right, North found it respectful enough to allow Parliament to receive it. Still, he did not make it available to Parliament until late January. He simply laid it before Parliament with other newspapers and information about events in the colonies without any effort to debate it or respond to it. Leaders in London ended up paying far more attention to the Declaration and other reports printed in the newspapers. On October 26, 1774, the same day Congress gave final approval to its petition, it wrapped up its work, allowing the delegates to return home after nearly two months in session. Before leaving, the delegates agreed to meet again for a second Congress the following spring, May 1775. By then, Britain would have had time to react to the petition and probably would have backed down and created a peaceful settlement to all of our problems. Next week, Massachusetts sets up a provincial Congress that is completely independent of Britain. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.